This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back. This is Katherine Klein on Dollars and Change. And I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm really excited that our next guest is Jeffrey Pfeffer. He is a professor of organizational behavior at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University, a prolific and uh, really influential author. He's uh, authored or co-authored 15 books, including Leadership BS, Fixing Workplaces and Careers, One Truth at a Time, The Human Equation, Building Profits by Putting People First, The Knowing Doing Gap, Uh, I know, Jeff. Jeff, I love that book. Uh, The Knowing Doing Gap, How Smart Companies Turn Knowledge into Action, and and more. And his most recent book is Dying for a Paycheck. Uh, So I was really excited to have Jeff on the program. We talk a lot on this show about the social impact of business. We tend to highlight the positive social impact of business. And uh, Jeff's book is a reminder that we ought to pay attention to the negative social impact of businesses, um, particularly the ways in which businesses are hurting employees' health. So Jeff, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me on your show. It's great. And it's always nice to hear your voice. And I'm excited to talk with you. Um, Jeff, Dying for a Paycheck, your, the, the title of this book uh, gives people a, a bit of a, of a preview. Of a, you're, you're really focused on the ways in, in which businesses are making people sick. So you know, for our listeners, how are businesses making sick and just ha- making their employees sick? And just how bad is the problem? Um, businesses are making employees sick in a number of ways um, through um, long work hours, through work-family conflict, through um, uh, economic insecurity, such as layoffs, uh, through an absence of job control, otherwise known as micromanagement. Um, through the, so, business, so basically things um, that are stressing out people in both white-collar and blue-collar work um, and, and and the problem is enormous. Um, I mean, the problem is it's almost all impossible to overstate the extent to which the problem is enormous. Um, so to give you a statistic, the Centers for Disease Control estimates that 86% of the United States' $2.7 trillion in healthcare spending, 86% of that goes for, chronic, goes for treating chronic disease. Mm-hmm. Chronic disease comes from stress and the unhealthy behaviors like smoking, drinking, alcohol abuse, etc., drug abuse that stress induces. Stress, according to many surveys, comes the number one or number two source of stress in most surveys is work. So so work and work practices, not just in the United States but around the world, is an enormous public health crisis. So, Jeff, I want to unpack in in a few minutes um, some of the the evidence to to back up your claim, how you can come up... Because uh, these are not just uh, this is not armchair theorizing. Um, there's there's a lot of evidence to support the claims you're making. But first, how did you come to write this book? You know, have you been have you been feeling stressed out? I'm, I th- you know, life is pretty good as a Stanford professor. Last I checked, um, but so how did you come to write the book? I came to write the book because I've for years sat on the Stanford Committee for Faculty and Staff Human Resources, which is essentially the faculty at the Stanford Committee on Health 
benefits. Stanford spends about $200 million a year on health benefits. Um, and we uh, are, of course, obsessed with controlling health care costs. And as I sat on that committee and listened to the discussions, the discussions were always around, um, let's put in a wellness program. Let's put in this. Let's put in that. Let's, you know, try to put a, have people go to a different network of doctors, do this, have them, of course, which every employer has done, have them pay more for their health insurance, so mm-hmm. the, the more co-payments, more whatever. And in all of this, Nobody ever was paying attention to the possibility that maybe the work environment was unhealthy. And we do have, as part of our health benefits program, a survey that people take. And it struck me that um, one year, I think 30-some percent of the people responding to that survey, and Stanford is a relatively benign environment, said um, in response to the question, are there elements of your work that are, that are interfering with your health? More than 30% of the people said yes. Wow. And so, and so it struck me that if you know, instead of just putting in um, yoga classes and stress reduction classes and nap pods and all this other stuff, we should get to the core. We should really try to fix the workplace in some ways that would prevent a lot of the stuff that was causing people um, distress. And then, so I began to look at this. And of course, the more you look, the worse it looks. There's a 40 or 50 years of epidemiological evidence on the effects of these various workplace practices on health and mortality. Um, and, uh, and the numbers are truly shocking. I mean, you know, layoffs raise the risk of suicide by two and a half times. Wow. Uh, layoffs increase death from heart attack in the three or four years following the layoff by 40%. Um, the job loss, I mean, it leads to physician-diagnosed health illnesses. And there's just a ton, a, a, probably close to a 1,000 studies on these things. And then you look at the... World Economic Forum, which has a report that says $47 trillion is going to be spent on chronic disease over a 30-year period, and you look at the CDC numbers that I've already quoted you, this is a very big problem. And so, Jeff, this is Nick Ashburn, and, you know, Catherine mentioned this wasn't armchair theorizing. And my question for you is really around sort of the multidisciplinary nature of, of your research on to, to back up this book. You mentioned epidemiology. Can you talk about the types of uh, disciplines and folks you collaborated with on for this research? Um, well, some of the, the book I wrote by myself, but for some of for the published, so we did meta-analyses of the effects of 40 not 40 things. We looked at the effects of 10 workplace exposures on four outcomes, um, including self-reported physical and mental health, having a physician diagnosed illness and death. And we found on those, based on those meta-analyses, which were done by two colleagues in operations research, Joel Goh and Stefano Zinios, um, that uh, these workplace practices were as harmful to health as secondhand smoke. And then uh, Joel did a model to aggregate up the effects of all this, and we estimate that workplace exposures are causing 120,000 excess deaths in the United States annually, which would make the workplace the fifth leading cause of death ahead of both Alzheimer's and kidney disease. Wow. And Catherine, you've talked about meta-analyses on this show before, and just for our listeners to make, you know, that sort of... A- high level of confidence yes, in the results. Yeah, yeah, I tend to think of meta-analyses. Sometimes people think randomized control trials are the gold standard. I'd actually say, nah, meta-analyses are the gold standard of research. They're simply they're quantitatively rigorous, sophisticated summaries of uh, numerous studies. Any one study doesn't necessarily give you truth, but when we find an effect that is consistent across 10, 20, 30, 40 studies, we say, okay, we believe this. And that's what these these meta-analyses are, are showing. Um 
Jeff, when I looked at the research, there's some of these things that for me, uh, you know, were, were not so surprising. I mean, you find there's clear evidence that health, you know, that health insurance has a big impact on people's lives. When you don't provide your, your workers with health insurance, that's really bad for their health. Yep. Layoffs are bad for your health. Then there are things that are somewhat more subtle around hours, around economic insecurity, around this sense of control, which you contrasted with micromanagement. Um, I'd love you to sort of talk about the different things you found and where you were surprised. So I don't think I was surprised. I mean, I think you're I think your comment is exactly right. I mean, in some sense, it isn't surprising that getting laid off is stressful or that losing your job is stressful or that, you know, having issues so that you cannot balance work and family obligations would, would, would create stress. I think the most surprising thing to me about this book uh, was not what is causing the trouble, but how big the problem is mm-hmm. and how pervasive it is. You've got $170,000 a year Uber engineer blowing his brains out because of the workplace. You've got mm. 23- or 21-year-old uh, year old intern working for Merrill Lynch in London who works 72 hours straight and collapses and dies. You've got, you've, you've got people, you know, and I, since I've written the book, I've talked to even more people. You've got a 34-year-old Harvard MBA graduate. Now, with all due respect to Stanford and Wharton, the people represented on this call, you know, Harvard MBAs, they're smart, they're tough people. She's 34 years old. She's nice. She says she had a lunch meeting with me, by the way, working for a healthcare company, ironically enough, says to me she's not sure what she, if she can work again um, and, and what's going to happen to her and what kind of a job she can take. Um, and by the way, her boss, who's a little bit older than her, that would make her less late 30s, has already had two strokes. Mm. So, wow. So, so this is, uh, you know, this is truly a. Um, so, what surprised me is not what's causing the trouble, but that the trouble is so widespread, that the stro- that, that, that the stress is so pervasive, that it is so toxic, and that the effects are so enormous. I mean, the the chronic disease stuff. You know, I think I just saw a study. Only 25 percent. Less than 25% of people in the United States have no chronic health care condition, and mm. a reasonable percentage have three or more. I mean, this is, this is the cause of the health care crisis, uh, the, the, the health care cost crisis. This is, we, are, we are working people uh, to death. And as I said in a talk I gave in New Zealand a while ago, I said, I have bad news that the workplace is killing people. Now I'm going to give you worse news. As far as I can tell, nobody cares. Yeah. So I want to come back to that point about who cares and, and the reaction to the book. Um, but before that, you know, I'm struck as you give these examples of the workers, uh, you know, who are suffering, the, the, the Harvard MBA, the, you know, the, and, and others. Um, the examples you gave, these were pretty privileged uh, people. These are people with, you know, big salaries, fancy jobs, lots of education. Um, do you use those examples in order to say this is widespread and it's even present for people who are, you know, privileged, high, highly educated, or is it especially? Um, I mean, because I'm thinking when you describe this, when I read the work, I'm thinking more about, uh, you know, the the folks who are working maybe part-time, maybe full-time, and their schedule changes every week and they can't predict it. And like my mom's. Like your mom. Yes, describe my, that, Nick, because yeah. you've talked about this. Yeah, I mean, my mom works for a major manufacturing, uh, a you know, major corporation in manufacturing. 
She is expected to work significant overtime. Of course, she's compensated, but significant overtime. And she might go in one night and because she works nights mm. and not sure whether she has to stay longer hours that night. She may, you know, it. she just doesn't know her full schedule very regularly at all. Right. And she's a manager level, right? Is that... Um, kind of. It's yeah. a it's an interesting structure there. Yeah. Got it. Got it. So yeah. So Jeff, as you think about the you know, and you want as helping our lin- our listeners conjure up the people who are perhaps most affected by these health threats. Who are they? Everybody. Hmm. Yeah. Every, everybody. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's it is obviously. I mean, you know, blue collar. You know, I mean, blue-collar people uh, are people who, particularly people with less levels of education, are going to be probably in jobs, and we've published a paper in Health Affairs on this. Uh, Education level relates, obviously, to your exposure to economic insecurity. Mm -hmm. It's going to relate to your probably not getting health insurance. It's going to relate to work-family conflict issues and the scheduling stuff that has been just talked about. So, yes. Um, uh, but but it, but this affects everybody. This is this is an enormous problem. And by the way, it is a worldwide problem. The 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 story that I sometimes hear is well, you know, this is just affects. This is a first world problem. It is not. Chronic disease is a huge problem in the developing um, mm-hmm. economies as well. Uh, the next thing I hear is that well, this is just a problem of old people. No, it is not. Many of the examples I use in the book are from relatively very young. People, uh, the Amazon employees, a recent graduate of the University of Washington, the Korean-American woman who said to me, and, and these were hard interviews to do. I mean, oftentimes uh, the person I was interviewing would wind up in tears. Mm-hmm. I would wind up really whatever. I mean, she says to me, you know, plaintively, she said, you know, she says, Asian-Americans normally look young. She says, I look older than my mother. Oof. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, and then the quote in the book, which goes something like, you know, I asked her, I said, you know, you were in a stressful situation. Your boss was giving you trouble and micromanaging you. You felt like you were under all this pressure. One of those sources of economic insecurity in today's world is that people believe that they can be fired at any moment, mm-hmm. even, right. people who have, even, even people who have done good work for a long period of time. So I have another person who I interviewed who works at Salesforce, and she said, every day I wonder if this is going to be my last day. Wow. Yeah. So, so, so the, so the, and 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 so when people are in pain, psychologically in pain, or maybe even physically in pain, they medicate. You know, they eat, they drink, they take drugs, they take prescription drugs, they take cocaine, they take all kinds of stuff. And it and it just is is it's heartbreaking, and it's particularly heartbreaking to me to see how how companies don't seem to really understand how, number one, this is driving down their performance, and number two, it's driving up their health care costs. Yeah. This is Dollars and Change here on Sirius XM Business Radio, Channel 132, and we're talking with Jeff Pfeffer, Stanford professor and author of Dying for a Paycheck. So, Jeff, your, your book has been out for a while now. Um, you've hinted, I think, about what the response from business has been. I mean, I, you know, one, you make an awfully strong case uh, in a business. This is a bad idea. You're creating stress. You're creating illness. You're driving up your own health care costs. Presumably, you're driving up your turnover costs. Uh, there's a better way. Um, what's the response been from, from business? Um, I don't think for the, so the response has been varied. But in general, I would say... Uh, that uh, people see the problem, people agree with you know with with, with this, uh, but no one wants to own the problem. 
So I see CEOs will pass this to HR. HR will pass this to the benefits part of HR. Benefits will then pass it to the benefits consultants. And this is in very much parallel, though it's different, obviously, in its effects and its causes, from what I have often seen for diversity and inclusion. So, every, so everybody says, yeah, we've got a diversity problem, but I don't, I don't want to own the problem. I'm going to pass it to HR. It's going to, pass, it's going to hire somebody to diverse, the diversity and inclusion initiatives. And, and no, no one really wants to own the problem. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's, I think, what's going on here. People say, yes, this is a big problem. I don't want to own it. It's like the game that you may have played as a kid called hot potato. Right. It's a hot potato. I want to get this onto, into somebody else's hands and out of mine. Well, and, and Jeff, I mean, right now, the, the problems, you talked about the health care costs. I mean, that's going into the broader macro economy and affecting, you know, if, if the person at Salesforce or my mom is going to the hospital and, and whatever, like some of those costs are being passed on to me, the taxpayer or whatever, too. So it's going into larger societies. Is that sort of what you're saying, too? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And where this is probably going to. So I just gave a talk to a bunch of uh, executives in our Stanford executive program on this. And I said, you know, I said sometime between six months from now and, you know, 50 years from now, this is this is going to come to a crashing end. And it's going to probably start in, in a country that has that is paying for health care. Maybe the U.K., where the health and safety executive has been very much on this, and there have been committees and white papers and all kinds of colors of papers, but nobody's yet <laughs> done anything about it. Um, but, the, but, the, but, but it has been very well documented as to how bad uh, the problem is and what it is costing. It's costing enormous amounts of money in absenteeism. It's cost an amount of, enormous amount of money in presenteeism. It's cost enormous amounts in health care costs. One survey done in the United States asked people, 61% of them said that they had missed work because of workplace stress. 7% said they'd been hospitalized. Wow. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> so sooner or later, somebody's going to do something about this, um, and we'll see. So, so Jeff, one of the things we uh, talk about a fair amount on this show is impact investing. And, you know, and, and sometimes we will get into the topic, for example, of gender lens investing and, you know, which gets defined in different terms. But, you know, people will often suggest that gender lens investing is investing in companies with a goal of making a financial return as well, but also investing in ways that, that benefit women's lives. Sure. It would seem to me that what, you know, there is an opportunity here for, whether we call this impact investing or ESG investing or socially responsible investing, you know, as an investor, do I want to invest in companies that treat people badly and treat their workers badly? Like, no, I don't. I don't want to do that because it's inconsistent with my values. And hey, you know, as as we're discussing, this could also be bad for the, you know, the company's bottom line, and therefore ultimately my investment. What I what I would love to you to talk about is. How would this get translated into, I don't know that there, I mean, I'm I'm hopeful there are impact investing funds that are thinking about this research and thinking about how do we create, how do we screen companies um, to, you know, to promote investment in healthy companies? You're you're telling us they're not the ones that that just invest in yoga, uh, yoga classes or whatever. How do we find them? That's a fabulous question. And uh, I was on a call yesterday with uh, there is now co-sponsored by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Uh, they have sponsored with another organization which does uh, ESG kinds of um, um, metrics to try to come up with metrics 
I think they have an initial list of 15 um, for, in fact, uh, assessing companies on their impact on their, if you will, human sustainability. So there is now Robert Wood Johnson, which is, of course, really a leader in this. Robert Wood Johnson figured out a long time ago that, uh, the, the, that the workplace is a big issue if you want to fix health care in the U.S. or anywhere else. And so there is now some move to try to get a, uh, a set of indicators. Um, but he, as you know from ESG reporting, this is, remains, I believe, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, this remains voluntary. And so, right. and so, and so this would be this would be a voluntary set of indicators, and I gave them some comments on some possible measures that they could use and reacted to some of the measures that they're proposing. But, but nonetheless, this would, this would remain obviously voluntarily in, voluntary in terms of its disclosure. But you would be pleased to know that there are now, under the mostly the stimulus or aegis of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, there is now a move to try to expand the S. Had to include more emphasis on people. Yeah, I think it's, it's such a good idea. And so, you know, thinking of environmental, social, and governance factors, ESG, you mentioned, I think I can't remember if it was in the Washington Post article that I read about the book or if it was, you know, you talk about this in the book, but, um, you know, we have agencies talking about environmental protection and that, you know, those negative externalities from, um, well, historically maybe, have been sort of regulated by the EPA or something, that there is a government body, a function to oversee that, one would think that maybe the Department of Labor would be interested in these types of factors or even the Health and Human Services. But you are positing that there's not really a government body overseeing this. You know, what would you recommend there? Well, uh, you know, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, is in theory charged with, with fixing workplace um, health issues. And so OSHA, you know, I have met, you know, with somebody from OSHA, and by the way, also met with somebody from the Centers for Disease Control. They are, I think, um, OSHA would like, I think, to do more in this domain. I think they very much see the problem. They have done some stuff in the healthy workplaces domain, and they understand the issue, and certainly the CDC understands the issue well. But we are now in a political climate in which these agencies scarcely have the resources to do what they are supposed to be doing, let alone take on new responsibilities. And yeah, uh, and and so, but in an ideal world, and because we are thinking about this, that I I will say that I'm that I'm working on a white paper that is that that touches on some of these ideas. I am really curious to know what you what are the kind of indicators that you would want to track in an ideal world. Well, um, there are a bunch, but I'm going to give you two, which I think are simple. Number one. Um, a single item self-reported measure of health, which is basically, Catherine, how healthy do you feel on a five-point scale from fabulous to mm-hmm. crummy, though the scale is quite a little bit different than that. Um, that single item measure of self-reported health prospectively predicts both mortality and morbidity, even controlling for your current health status, even controlling for a variety of biomarkers. And so this has been validated for young people, for old people, for various ethnicities and racial groups. So this is a, this is a very, yeah. very well-validated measure. It's a single-item measure. It's pretty easy to collect. And, Secondly, Jeff, when you say I've, that, and when you say validated, you mean, you know, amongst academics and scientists, right? That's, I mean, that they've done studies. In right. Which I, in which they look, they look prospectively, i.e. longitudinally. They say, I've measured your health 
on your on the self-reported item, and then I'm going to measure five or six or eight months or several years in some cases down the road and say, are you still alive and what's your current health status? And it turns out that single item measure prospectively predicts both mortality and morbidity. Yeah. Secondly, as I've already alluded to, when people are suffering in the workplace, when they are stressed, when they're in psychological pain, when they are sleep deprived, when they are, you know, miserable, they are going to medicate. And so, you know, prescription drugs, you know, as a, for this person I interviewed from Salesforce said, I, you know, I joined Salesforce one week later, I took started an antidepressants. Wow. And then, and then she smiles and says, by the way, all my friends are on antidepressants. And she looked at me, and this is where I got the idea. She said, maybe you ought to do like a scale of the percentage of people in various companies that are on antidepressants. And it's not just a facetious or funny idea. You, When I would talk and do the interviews, in almost every case, not in every case, but in almost every case, people were taking something. They were maybe taking ADHD drugs. Uh, to keep awake. Maybe they, they, maybe they, they were taking sleeping pills uh, to counteract the effect of the ADHD drugs when they wanted to go to sleep. Um, maybe they needed to take sleeping pills in any event because they were so stressed by the work they couldn't you know, calm down enough to, to get sleep. So there, there is, as a matter of fact, I'm with a colleague who's in the medical school about to start looking at some data which we have um, from Optum um, which is unfortunately masked by company, but in any event, we're going to try to look at uh, uh, prescription drug use as a as, as an indicator of kind of health status and, and workplace conditions. So, so the so those would be the two I would start with. But then there are a bunch of others. Interesting. And and what about uh, where our time is flying by? So, what about your advice uh, to companies? Maybe this is to your you know your Stanford MBA graduates. Um, what what you know we've 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 talked a lot about the negatives. What are the how would you frame this in the positives? What would you want companies to do? What would you want you know well, your students who are becoming executives to do and create in the workplace? Well, I think so. I think this begins with understanding that when they, when people come to work for your organization, for any organization, they have entrusted their physical and psychological well-being. And just as you should become a good steward of the physical environment, you should become a good steward of the of, of the human environment. Yeah. And if when you so, what's the difference between Patagonia and many other organizations? What's the difference between Bob Chapman and Barry Waymiller and many other organizations? What's the difference between Canceria Tavita and many other organizations? They take the responsibility to the well-being of their employees seriously, and so it begins with a sense of stewardship. If you if you if I, if I don't think I'm responsible for you, it doesn't matter. I'm yeah. not saying say you're going to be in deep trouble. If I do think I'm responsible for you, I will figure out how to take that responsibility seriously and improve on it, just as we have done with respect to uh, carbon use and carbon footprint and recycling and everything else. Yeah, I love that. It's a it's a very a very powerful image, and it is a mindset. It, you know, it is a very different mindset, and I think. Uh, the analogy is is helpful as well, right? Because a lot of companies do take seriously. You know, I I um, don't want to pollute the environment. I have yep. a, a you know a res, an environmental responsibility. What you're saying is you also have you know and a responsibility for your employees. It's, yeah, uh, and one of the things that my friend Nuria she at ESA in Barcelona said to me, she says, "Why do we care more about polar bears than human beings?" Yeah, yeah, it 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 uh, it is. 
It is disturbing. Well, I, you know, so appreciate you being with us. And as I, I said, Jeff, I do, you know, when I knew about your book, and I, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about as we talk about social impact of business and all the different ways that businesses create a positive and negative social impact, you know, the, the, how do you treat your employees is really high on the list. And I think sometimes is, is a um, dimension of social impact that we don't pay enough attention to in the impact investing space. So I, I appreciate you joining us. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Great. Well, thanks so much, Jeff. Great to have you on the show. Uh, Jeffrey Pfeffer, the Thomas D. Uh, Professor of Organizational Behavior at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University and the author of Dying for a Paycheck. We'd like to thank all our guests who've been with us this morning, as well as everyone who works on the show. And for my co-host, Nick Ashburn, and me, thanks so much to all our listeners. This is Dollars and Change on SiriusXM Business Radio 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.